0: This podcast is about the sounds of the past and... Sound is, is very atmospheric, isn't it? And I think it's really good for evoking memories um, in a much better way than reading about things or looking at pictures. I think it really takes you back to a, a moment, perhaps, of your own memories. Um, and it's very spatial. So I'm standing here at the moment in a lovely woodland in Penryn, in Cornwall, in the spring. and uh, But I'm also standing in a factory because uh, about 100 years ago, this was a really noisy factory processing uh, china stone to make uh, pottery so if you imagine uh, how the sounds would have been different then i think it would give you a real sense of what that space was like and, and, and the difference so here for example imagine uh, instead of very low ruins of walls uh, and stone strewn about the place uh, you'd actually have tall stone walls and a roof over the top of me and the sounds would be the acoustic would be really different we would be in an urban Uh, industrial environment not to mention of course all the uh, enormously loud sounds of processing of stone and the water wheels that were uh, powering that machinery and that sound would have been uh, reverberating through the valley as well and then if you think of coming back to the present how different it feels to be here in in really a picturesque and lovely and uh, kind of countryside place really in the In the woodland, and I think sound is really good for giving you a a real sense of that space. And for me, that's why it's really interesting to think about the sounds of the past. But there are loads of people who study, who research really seriously the sounds of the past, and they do it from all sorts of different fields. There are archaeologists, there are literary scholars, there are sound engineers, archivists, ecologists, performance specialists. And in this series of podcasts, I'm going to interview them and find out what they do what they learn and well it's interesting to me but i want to know why they devote their careers to this i also do want to have that kind of experience of the past a little bit that that's what interests me so i'm going to try at the end of every interview using what they've told me i'm going to do a a bit of a recreation of some of the sounds and soundscapes and acoustic that they've been talking about just to try to give myself and hopefully you a feeling of what that past was like to experience now I am not a sound designer and I'm also making this podcast in uh, the coronavirus lockdown. So um, it's just going to be maybe a little sort of haunting of sounds or a shadow of sound passing across the podcast. (laughs) In this episode, uh, it's the sounds of the Renaissance that will be haunting your headphones because I'm interviewing Professor Jennifer Richards, who researches what the 16th century schoolroom sounded like. Although um, we are going to be talking to each other on Zoom and uh, the sounds
1: of the present keep
0: intruding, unfortunately.
1: You can might have a dog barking, you might have paper rustling, you might hear a cart running by outside.
0: That's true, like the bus going past when I'm trying to talk to you now. <laughs> Professor Richards isn't a sound studies expert, Um, she's not a historian, Uh, she's a scholar of English literature. Uh, She's actually the Joseph Cowan Professor of English Literature at Newcastle University. So she got into this because she became really interested in cultures of literacy and of reading. And as she's going to explain, um, the lost sounds of of schoolrooms from 400 years ago, they're more than just a, a curiosity they can help us understand what past cultures of reading and learning were like. And then that can help us understand our own present day way of doing things. Um, And it could have implications for how we're teaching people to read, for example. Uh, And so this is what really started her off on her detective work into the sounds of past schoolrooms.
1: People don't normally think about literature in relation to soundscapes. In the 20th century, our theories of um, print and literacy tend to emphasize the silence of reading. We understand reading as a silent activity. And I was a little bit dissatisfied. I didn't feel that the story we were telling about that field, about how books were used in the past, was, um, I didn't feel I had the full picture of what was actually going on.
0: When you do your research, what are you
1: trying to find out? You're trying to understand, trying to create a fuller picture of what life was like um, in order to um, understand an aspect of our society that is of interest today because it's part of our heritage or because it's got something to tell us about how we became modern or what we, in my case, what we have lost.
0: You have a suspicion that we've lost something and you must have felt that before you even dug deeper into this what, what is it that you think that we've lost
1: i think we've lost voice awareness i feel this quite strongly actually and um at the beginning when i started on this project i thought it was a project about orality and um at some point i realized that i had to shift my focus from thinking about orality to vocality and focus specifically on the physical voice what it is and then why it matters historically what what is orality in this sense then okay so the two oral and vocal orality and vocality are overlapping they they, they, they seem to be synonyms if you look them up in a dictionary like the oxford english dictionary they're basically synonyms but actually they give us a slightly different uh um, they gave me a slightly different focus so orality is can cover um uh, any kind of oral culture that's pre-literate. But when you shift attention to the voice, then it helped. Once I made that shift, once I shifted my thinking from thinking about orality more generally, then I could see other things that had remained hidden to me. They were actually there in broad sight, but because I wasn't thinking about voice, I didn't see them. And that means voice training in school. It means attentiveness to Um, performance possibilities of text, it it meant uh, performance-aware writing, Um, and I I began to, to understand that for many of my early modern subjects, they had different technologies of communication. One might be the pen or quill for writing, the other one would be print, the printing press, that's rather novel in the period, but the voice is also a technology, so that for me was a breakthrough in understanding that particular sound and how how i might recover it how you do it and how you recover sounds in my case from 500 years ago now that's a challenge
0: okay so so let's sort of drill down and look at the methods that someone can use because as you've pointed out this is really hard to to bring this stuff back how do we know how do we know what was happening something that isn't recorded so, so what kind of methods can someone like you in, in the area of literary studies use to know what something sounded like in the
1: 1500s? You can't exactly know what it sounded like, but you can know um, what they thought was important and why. Uh, and why. You, you see the word voice in literary studies everywhere, but it's usually meant as a metaphor, voice of this, voice of that. But I was interested in the physical voice so the the qualities of the, the prosodic features of the voice that are meaning making so it includes um, pace um, tone tone for me is really important because it's about emotional color when we speak and then it's also um, timbre so the, you know that what your um, whether your voice is husky uh, whether it's high those kind of those kinds of features of the voice but because i was working historically I could then look at the schoolroom, the early modern schoolroom, and um, using sources that I'd been looking at for a long time, but not quite knowing what to do with them, then things started to fall into place. And I could see actually that these were not um, books, as I was, they're not like literary texts. They are um, uh, prompts, they are scripts, and that their meaning belongs off, off the page, that you have to imagine their use, and that they they're being used for training, for voice training. So, uh,
0: in a way, then the the pages that some of which have survived are, to my sort of oversimplified way of looking at it, um, there's there's this past schoolroom which you know is no more, and all those people are no more. Uh, but because the the pages have survived, there's some sense in which we could possibly reconstruct something that that that's gone. So, so on, a, on a typical page that you're using as a, as a resource, what, what is actually there that, that you can hope to use to, to find out something about the past sounds of the schoolroom?
1: Well, punctuation. Um, but of course, the punctuation in this period was rhetorical, not like our punctuation, which is grammatical. So our punctuation tells us about the relationship of different parts of a sentence to each other. So we can identify subclauses and so on, but their punctuation was rhetorical. So it looks to our eyes very erratic, but actually, for some of the writers I looked at, it makes perfect sense when you understand their long sentences. They have movement; they have the movement of a thought, and they're meant for performance. So my favourite way of explaining rhetorical punctuation actually comes from George Putnam. So you have to to know that this in this period they've got three main punctuation marks. They've got the comma, the colon, and the full stop. And each of those marks have a time, uh, um, have a time connected to them. So they're short, middle and longer pauses. So the George Putnam gives the um, 1589 gives the best description of how it works. This cannot be better represented than by example of these common travellers by the highways where they seem to allow themselves three manners of stays or easements. One, a horseback calling perchance for a cup of beer or wine, and having drunken it up, rides away and never lights. He, he imagines um, a rider on horseback. So the, the rider on horseback stops at a tavern, doesn't get off his horse, but has a drink of beer and moves on. That's a comma. He stops at the tavern he gets off his horse and he has lunch. That's a colon. And at night, when he can conveniently travail no further, he taketh up his lodging and rests himself till the morrow. He stops at the tavern, he gets off his horse, he stays the night. That's a full stop. We talked a lot about the voice.
0: Um, you, you have some evidence of other sounds as well as uh, this rhetorical voice. Is that, is that correct?
1: Nobody's in a a, um, a, a recording studio, so there'll be other sounds around as well. One of my favourite ways of thinking about the church is how noisy it is. You've got rustling, you've got um, dogs barking, uh, you've got people probably falling asleep and snoring. You've got lots of different competing sounds. So there's some amazing
0: examples, so rustling. Um I might have just assumed there would be rustling because clothes rustle, but you've got rustling, you've got dogs barking and people sleeping and maybe snoring. So
1: you must have a reason to think that that's the case. Where, how do you know? Just records, diaries, that kind of thing. you know, um, um, stories that people say. Um, so we can we can extract from literary sources from historical documents, from diaries. Uh, we can, we can begin to create a soundscape. Um,
0: and how about the schoolroom? what uh, sources do we have to know what was happening in the schoolroom sound-wise?
1: Okay, you've got woodcuts. So we tend to think about the teaching of reading and writing as silent activities. But when you look at woodcuts, you can see that there's a whole range of things going on. So some of my favourite woodcuts are in early catechisms, many of which have not survived, actually. But they might show you a schoolroom with um, a boy standing before the master speaking or performing in some way you might see um, some boys uh, reading their books um, but others behind them obviously um, being naughty and chatting and playing. you might see a dog wandering then the picture might have a would have a, um, a whip a birch underneath the master's chair or a dog in the middle of the room so you, you get a sense there are multiple things going on in any schoolroom.
0: So we we can tell then that there would have been some directions to speak aloud, that would have been speaking aloud, and then presumably uh, encouragements or corrections
1: or... Exactly, exactly. And then there are exercises like dialogues. It's it's all stepped. There are different exercises. Um, And we've got records of performances of plays being put on in different schools. Um, But then in diaries, you get a sense of exactly how bad some of these schoolmasters were. Um, drunkenness is, was a serious problem, beating, you know, you have to sort of factor in other sounds as well.
0: What do we know about the kind of acoustic of a room like that? Um, and what other hard objects might be in there, apart from persons and sticks and dogs? What, what might have been around
1: them that might have also been affecting the sound? Benches. So in the pictures I've looked at, they're sitting on benches. Um, there might be a table. There'd definitely be something behind which the tutor is the, the teacher is sitting. Um, there might be several teachers, if it was a very large, one room, school with one room. The students in the higher years promoted to, um, so they'd be, they'd be the bodies of perhaps many um, boys. So my sort
0: of uh, slightly naive and entertainment oriented quest to try to recreate any of this um I'm not going to try and do a kind of uh, all encompassing and, and claim to be realistic sort of uh, recreation, but even just light touch. Do you think that's um, feasible for me to just just give a little kind of haunting of, of some of the sounds, perhaps the voices? And, and if so, what would you pick out? I think that the
1: schoolroom would be really fun to try and recreate. If you just look at some of those woodcuts, you can see the sounds that, that are there. You can hear the back room, the back, the, the murmur at the back. Of different voices, of people not paying attention, you can might have a dog barking. You might have paper rustling. You'd have the scritching of, of uh, scratching of quills. Um, you'd have um, um, m- probably murmuring of uh, readers. You'd hear sentences being re- repeated in different tones. You'd see, you'd hear and see declaiming, so high oratory oh, whoa, is me, that kind of thing. You might hear a cart
0: running by outside. That's true, like the bus going past when I'm trying to talk to you now.
1: <laughs> I mean, I suppose a key question for me is, why do we want to listen? Or why do we need to listen, actually? Because the, you know we've been doing history for you know, many years without listening, just working from historical documents and reconstructing a portrait of the past it's not just about what did it actually sound like but but the, the 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 crucial question is what else can we know or learn about if we listen rather than just look
0: so yeah of course in a way uh, i would like this these podcasts to be about that that question so what what is the reason what 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 difference does it make to know something about what the the uh 16th century schoolroom or church
1: sounded like? I suppose I would say rather passionately that we need to have a better understanding of sounds in order to explain the, the, the full experience of key, key aspects of our lives. For me, it happens to be reading. So a, a, a key question for me was, well, if they had all this training at school, if they were voice aware, if they were sensitive to the acoustics of space, um, and the ambience, kind of ambient sound we've been talking about. Um, what kind would they be different readers to ourselves? Neuroscientists have found that when we read silently, the nerves in our throat are active. So, in a way, there's a trace of um, vocality. But we still think of ourselves as silent readers. But what if we didn't? What if we understood that there was an intrinsic? subconscious connection between sounding and seeing on the page what difference would that make to the way we taught uh, the tools we developed for young people or struggling readers all sorts of readers actually of course we can never
0: be sure our recreations are at all accurate But talking to Jennifer about her work shows how much of past sounds are recorded, in words and in drawings in her case, and in the neurons firing in our bodies when we read. If you want to find out more about the work of Professor Jennifer Richards, you can find links on the podcast website, as well as credits and information about the sounds and the music used in the programme. More past sounds to come, including Stone Age India and enslaved workers in the US South. Many thanks to our actors Ethel and Stanley Harvey and Ernie and Michael Wincott. Music by Silicon Transmitter and sound effects by Bonnie Orbit, Splice Sounds, Margot Heston and BBC Rewind.